to the Voice of HK podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Bajik-Smith, and in over a decade, I have supported hundreds of older adults to improve their well-being in late life. This podcast offers an authentic insight into aged care, practical tips, and all the inspiration to keep you going. I truly believe that every older person needs to feel heard, loved, and understood. And it is my mission to halve the depression rates in Australian aged care facilities by 2022. We have a very special guest for this episode because you and I, listeners, are going to put Julie Badgick Smith on the other side and we're going to ask her about her work just to change it up a little, just for the end of 2020. So, Julie, thanks for appearing on your show. Oh, thank you. I like that little bit of a, a laughter that you had in there. <laughs> What have you got in store for me today? Well, I've got, well, let's just wait and see. Let it unfold, just like a good consultation should be. Look, um, lots of questions and lots of things that I'd love to ask you, but I, I'm really curious about how you ended up where you are today. So what I was hoping to ask you was I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background and your upbringing and, and where you lived. Okay, right. Well... I was born in Bosnia in a place called Sarajevo and war broke out in 1992 and my family moved to New Zealand and we lived there for seven years. My dad is a civil engineer and he he couldn't get a job in the on the rails in New Zealand and he got a job in Newcastle. So we moved to Australia in 2001 where I started my psychology degree. I did a first year in New Zealand, then I transferred across. And then I lived in Newcastle, did my psychology degree and moved to Sydney, I can't remember when, I think 2007, it's about then, yeah. About 2007. And yeah. just going back a little bit, so you arrived from Bosnia, from Sarajevo. Did you speak English when you, when you arrived in New Zealand? Oh, gosh, no, no. I had lots of embarrassing things happen, like lining up at the post office and there was a big queue and I'm like, what are these people lining up for? And I would go up to the counter and they're like, no, you have to line up and I didn't understand what they were saying. I was like, I just want to buy some stamps. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, I did not speak any English and I was 11 years old. (gasps) So... The reason I ask that question, because I grew up around Leichhardt and many Italian families there and, and came across many children, you know, of my own age that, that didn't speak English. And I'm wondering, do you think that inability to communicate in this language called English, do you think this affected your interest in, you know, in communication and connection, loneliness and, and these places that you currently work in now? Look, I think it had a lot to do with it, but I also think like from a very young age, I had a very special connection with older people. Even when I was maybe five or six and my mother used to send me to the local markets and I would always make sure that I buy 
stuff from the elderly people. Like I had a special man who had a stroke and I would always make sure I get flowers from him. So I think that even though we moved, that bond that I had for older people was always there, that compassion. And perhaps as my English skills improved, and they're still improving, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just something that came along with with that. And I think it's also given me, you know, being bilingual has really given me uh, extra skills in understanding a lot of older people who are from non-English speaking backgrounds. That would have equipped you really well. And that was certainly going to be my next question around that. So you say, you talk about being connected to old people and I know, I know that about you. So was this why you decided to focus on working in aged care? Like what drove that? Because there was no jobs, very little education. There wasn't so much in the way of training. So so why did you focus on that and, and what made you stick with it? I've done a lot of work with children who were removed from their parents, um, you know, like formerly docs or facts, what they're you know, called now. I've done disability work. I have done workers' comp work. And then I was asked to do one-off assessments in an aged care home one day and I didn't really know what to expect and I just loved it. It was such a good day and I just saw a huge opportunity to really make a difference in that space. Yeah, I looked on SEEK and I looked for jobs and there was just literally nothing out there. I was doing my MBA at the time and I had this assignment about writing up a business proposal. So I came up with the idea of wise care and I got a really good mark in that assignment and I thought, well, you know what, maybe I should just give it a go and see what happens. And so that's how it all started. So you began Wise Care. When did that start? Like did this start before you you graduated or what, what, it sounds like it was brewing in you? Yeah, 2010, 2011, I released. 2010 I started and 2011 I changed from a sole trader to a company. And yeah, I, I finished my master's at the time and I left my full-time job in workers' compensation. I ran into a nurse where I did some of those one-off assessments and she said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, you know, I want to do more work in aged care. And she said, come along to my facility. And that's really, that was my stepping stone. And so not only were there no jobs in aged care, were there no very few resources, but I really realised that the emotional needs of older people in residential care were completely neglected. So there was no funding for services delivered through Medicare, and which meant that, you know, basically if someone moves into an aged care home, that they're being discriminated against because hey, you moved into a home because you have high level of needs, but then it's like, oh, well, you know, you can't get any rebates if you see a psychologist, you know, as opposed to if you lived in your own home and it just didn't sit right with me. So I, I met a couple of, you know, other advocates for palliative care and, and for other areas where um, funding wasn't met. I met with a few politicians as well. And I really, I, I was just really, you know, annoyed by the fact that someone in residential aged care, he's there, you know, they live their whole life. And then if they want to get support for mental health, it's well, you know, because they've gone lots of changes and we know, you know, as your physical health declines, your emotional health is affected as well. 
And we know that, you know, they're removed from their families and they're going through all these difficulties. And then it's if they want to get help, they've got to fork out and pay for full consult themselves because nursing home doesn't employ mental health professionals. And yeah, so I, I met lots of politicians. I made a lot of submissions. I spoke to, you know, Human Rights Commission and I made some enemies in the way as well because, you know, there was a little bit of funding given, but then it just stopped. And I said, well, that's not right, you know, to give a little bit of funding and then just stop. Like, what about these people? Like, what are they supposed to do now? So I learned a lot about advocacy at that stage and I still feel very strong about making sure that the voice of those in residential care is heard. And I really feel that every elder deserves to be respected, that they deserve to receive compassion and that they deserve to be happy. So you you see yourself as an advocate for, and it certainly sounds like that's what is important to you, but how can you change things as a as a psychologist working in residential aged care, how do you think you can can help? Like, what is it that you do? Oh, look, I sat many times thinking about this and I was sitting in, you know, group sessions with older people in residential care and have met some incredible people over the years, retired psychology professors, academics, very educated people, as well as people who've come, you know, from out of the country. And I asked them, I said, what can I do to make sure that your voices are heard? And they said, look, Julie, you probably are not going to make a difference in our lifetimes, but what about the future generations? What about people who come to aged care in the next 10 years, 20 years? We want to make sure that they don't go through what we've gone through. And so I decided to go back to university and do more studying research study, which means instead of reading textbooks, going out there and getting data and then writing up about it. Because there, again, wasn't enough research in this area as well. So with my experience as a psychologist and then experience as a researcher, I felt more empowered to make a difference. So today I am part of Australian Psychological Society National Committee for Psychology and Aging, and we've made submissions to the Royal Commission about mental health, about Medicare, and those submissions are getting accepted. The Royal Commission is the best thing that could have happened for aged care because the Commission is finding out about all these gaps that are out there and about what's been really happening for those people in residential care, about their needs, needs not being met. And I know that there's lots of negative stories that come up. There's also a lot of positive stories that come out. But I think what is really coming out of that is that just because someone is in residential care doesn't mean that they're dying, doesn't mean that they're only going to live till tomorrow, that they still have a quality of life to enjoy. And that if we can help them and support them early on in their journey, that they can actually have a better quality of life. Yeah, but I think I I mean you know hats off to you for that that advocacy because uh, you know I I think we both agree that it's really about quality of living and that's the present form of life it's not life at the end it's life that somebody's living and we talk about people going into aged care because we know they they probably won't come out but how important is like I think of words like vitality I think of words like growth 
What do you think about that? Like, you know, someone, the Eden Alternative talks about, I remember seeing one of the domains of their well-being was growth. And I thought, I don't understand how you can have growth in aged care when you move into residential aged care, but what you call the, the reluctant move. Is it possible for people to experience growth in residential aged care, really? Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's lots of people who are not thriving in their home environment. I've known a case of a lady who, you know, was timing how many times in a day she would have to get out of her chair to toilet because she was worried about having a fall and going into residential care. So resident, I've seen complete transformation in people who've moved into residential care because they're no longer isolated. They're getting regular meals. They're getting support. It doesn't mean end of, you know, end of life. And recently I, I spoke with Kelly Arthurs from Palliative Care. She works for Hammond Care. And she said, even with palliative care, it's not about dying. It's about your quality of life. And she deals with palliative care. So I think that we're just forgetting that, you know, it is not, it is not normal to, to experience dementia. Dementia is not a normal part of aging. It is not normal to get depressed as you get older. That a lot of people move into residential care because they have support needs, not just because they're old. And that they can certainly learn new skills and reconnect with a lot of their earlier skills. I mean, even, you know, through work that you're doing, I'm sure you've met a lot of cases where, sorry, in, in, in mental health, we talk about cases as opposed to yes, clients. That's okay. <laughs> and, you know, now, you know, consumers, but I'm sure you've met a lot of people who, you know, they would say, oh, you know, you, you, you can't get much engagement out of them and you've, you've proven them wrong. Yes, that's very frustrating. And I bet you find that incredibly frustrating as well. And the other thing I, I hear often, Julie, too, is, and maybe, because you work with families as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's, and that's a very important thing that I want to come back to, because families, I think, are, are the very important in this, this equation that we're talking about. But I wanted to say that, you know, people say to me, I, I say, what's dad interested in? And they say, oh, dad, nah, he's got dementia, he's not interested in anything. You find this, this is very frustrating for me, and I'm, I'm sure it is, it's an absurd question to even ask you, but how do you deal with that? What do you do with the family that thinks life's over for mum or dad or their partners? How, what's the way forward there? Mm, it's a good question. I think that families are really surprised about the skills and resilience in, in their elderly relatives. And you know, I think that that's one of the joys and blessings of life. It's that we can't predict that, you know, when we think someone can no longer contribute. I think that people can contribute to their last breath, really. And so I, I think that it's, with families, a lot of that is about education and giving them the right support so that they know what's going on. For, for families, they might also have difficulties accepting that their loved one has moved into care. Some of them might have different opinions. I know that when their loved ones moves into care that sometimes can cause tension in families because they have disagreements. One child thinks that a parent should move, another one thinks that they shouldn't. And also education about the, the health condition that their loved one has and what, what that really means. And I've had to do it a number of times as a psychologist um, you know, it, it is something that I think perhaps families need a little bit more support. If their loved one is diagnosed with dementia, it doesn't mean that the life is over. And I, I just think that 
you know, there's really a huge opportunity for us to work together with families, with older people, with with health professionals, with wide range of workers to support this older person in in this time in their lives. I, I wanted to wanted to ask you about family because in my work, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find out the goldmine of information that people sit on, that the knowledge they have, the family histories, the anecdotes of their loved one that's living in aged care. And, and when when this person is no longer able to communicate and I need to find that out from a family member that knows them, I seek out the family and I seek those out. Can I ask you, I don't want, to, don't want you to betray your tricks of the trade here, but when you have somebody that is not able to communicate, what do you do and who do you go to to find out about them and what might be the driver for them? How do you work with someone? Here they are, they can't communicate. They can communicate, but you can't understand that communication. What do you do and who do you go to and how do you break through that? How do you start? I would look to see who's involved in supporting that person at that point of time and see when Look, a lot of my work has been in residential care. I've also done a lot of work in community as well. But in the last little while, it's been more about residential care. So in residential care, look, when they had the last care conference and who was involved with that person and supporting them and then make contact with them. So it's not necessarily someone who's next of kin or who is written on the file, but like who's more involved. And so that there's, you know, difference between who's actually coming in as opposed to who's just on paperwork and doesn't really necessarily get involved with that person. Often it might be a a speech pathologist. It could be a GP that they've known for a long time. It could be other health professionals that are involved or other aged care professionals, not necessarily health-related. And look at, at the ways how they've supported the older person and look and seek opportunities to to speak with them and perhaps organize, you know, an informal meeting where you can collaborate and figure out how, you know, what's the next best step forward with the client. I must say that I haven't really had more recently many clients who are not able to communicate, but I, I certainly have had a number who are not only affected by dementia but even stroke where they've lost their ability to talk. And so what would actually happen is that they would say, these people don't need psychology because they're not able to communicate. And then I would turn around and say, well, they're not able to communicate and that's why they need psychology. True. You know, because they're frustrated and what they can see is just the – outward behaviours and what we see in in residential settings is that residents who have outward behaviours, they get more attention than those who have inward behaviours and who are quiet and withdrawn. So, you know, if someone is vocalising a lot, they're, they're disturbing others, you know, what is really going on with them and why they're being unsettled? Is that because they have a urinary tract infection? Is it because they have changes in their brain or is that because they're just frustrated because they're not being understood and how can we look at the ways to support their communication so Moz for so many years answers were always given in pills you know give them this this will calm them down give them this but I think in the last 10 years like everyone's realizing that's not the answer because you know sedating people is not not the right thing to do 
And this, you know, it should really be the last option because just because someone is vocalizing their needs doesn't mean they need they need to be, you know, toned down and to, you know, not be heard. And that really upsets me to think that there's people who whose needs are not being met. This episode is proudly brought to you by the Beyond Reluctant Move book, Practical Approach to Wellbeing in Residential Aged Care Facilities. Let's together beat the myth that depression and dementia are a normal part of ageing. Grab a copy today from wisecare.com.au. So you, you just talked then about um, outward behaviours and inward behaviours, and we know that people with outward behaviours will get the attention. That's clearly where it goes. So I guess you have people uh, you have people referred to you to your service. Is that how it works with you? Oh, look, I stopped seeing clients one on one a few years ago. I um, actually during the course of my work, I I was re-ended twice whilst my vehicle was stationary in between appointments. I used to live in my car. I used to always you know, go from one nursing home to another. I, you know, I would clock up hundreds of kilometers every every day, every week. And I've I've stopped doing a lot of one-to-ones and I've been doing more of mentoring and supporting other mental health professionals. And I've also been, you know, focusing more on the training of the workforce because the big area, you know, that I've learned, like, you know, one of my biggest lessons that I've learned is that supporting older people is different to supporting younger generations who might need mental health support and they can do it quietly and no one knows that they're doing it. With older people, we need to work collaboratively and we need to support them together. And so it is really everyone's responsibility. Everyone who supports an older person needs to know how to engage with them, how to help them identify their strengths, how to help them establish social goals and engage them in resilience-boosting activities. And we know that exercise is very effective. We know that music is very effective. Art therapy is very effective. There's lots and lots of different approaches to helping older people with their mental health that is not just therapy and that is not just medication. And so my focus over the last few years has been running training for workers of various backgrounds to teach them those skills and how they can have better engagement with their clients. And so talking again about inward behaviours and outward behaviours, these these are very challenging for for teams on the floor, the frontline teams to be working with. How do you go about training someone? Like you're talking about training and, and you have a lot of knowledge, but what about, I mean, people have a very fixed idea on on how people should behave and, and what's required. And, and it's very task-focused, the industry, as we know. This is a challenge and there's there's not a lot of dignity in the time that people are expected to be ready and it's hard for the staff. So how do you train? How do you supervise that? That's a good question. So training is online, so people can do it any time of the day. And sometimes, you know, I log into my computer in the morning and I see, oh, someone was doing, you know, the module <laughs> at one o'clock in the morning um, in, in in Perth. So there's been a lot of training about mental health and there's been lots about, you know, recognising, which is really good, you know, 
depression, delirium and dementia and what is what. And I'm not saying that aged care workforce needs to become a counsellor or a psychologist or a mental health professional. What I'm saying is that if you see that a client has always displaying inward behaviours, that they were very withdrawn, they don't want to join any activities, they don't want to leave their room, they just say to you, I want to go home, or, you know, they don't want to mix and integrate with other residents, they don't want to do any activities that are good for their well-being. So not necessarily go and do knit and natter or do bingo, but, you know, they don't want to even go for a walk. They don't even want to go, you know, if they have a concert on or if they've got someone like you coming in and they go, no, 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 I don't want. Not Murray. Not Murray today. But, you know, they need to know what to say and how to respond. And they need to, you know, like the big issue that I've really picked up on in the in the last few years is that we are so focused on the support needs of older people, but we don't really look at what their strengths are. I mean, I know I would hate if I, you know, when I get old, if people just talk about things that I can't do, not what I can still do. And so my training is really focused on, on giving that transformation to the workers and empowering them in being able to have that better connection with the resident or client in the community. So the training is, it's for both community and for residential aged cares, but it's really good for them to know, hey, hang on a second, I can really make a difference there. And that's why I'm having such positive feedback about the training, because it applies to people of all levels of education experience. Interestingly, you know, I've had few very strong personalities also do the training and they're like, I don't know, you know, of course, the first module talks about mental health and I don't really know, you know, how am I supposed to know if it's anxiety or is it depression or, you know, is it adjustment disorder? And I just say, I want you to notice any differences. And if there are concerns, you need to escalate them. These people might still need help from a mental health professional. They might still need to see a geriatrician. They might still need to see a psychiatrist if they have a long history of mental health disorders. But I'm telling you, this is how you can work with them and support them better in day to day. So when you are showering them or if you are supporting them on an outing, that you know what to say. Because it breaks my heart when I hear workers say to me, I don't want to talk to my client about their spouse who passed away because I don't know how they're going to respond or if they're going to cry. And so they don't want to engage in reminiscence, which is we know very good for well-being, or they don't want to, you know, touch a topic that has perhaps been difficult for that person. And, you know, interestingly, Moz, we have all had obstacles in our lives. We've all had challenges and it's not necessarily going to generate a negative response in us. It will also help us look at the ways that we have dealt with those, you know, circumstances and look at the strengths that we have developed through that experience and how we can use those skills in you know in future events and what what has helped us overcome that so even though we may have had some challenges i know with a lot of my clients who went through you know great depression or a very difficult time even you know with the pandemic how they've overcome things in the past and what has helped them to build their resilience you know, I just love what you just said there. And I wanted to just step back a second. I was going to move on, but I wanted to step back because you talked about 
people crying. And I found a lot in my work that some of the staff are very, very reluctant when tears come. They're frightened of this. They want to end it. How important, because I've got a view that people, well, people need to, I think people need to experience all emotions. I think that's important and healthy. But I wanted to ask you, how important is, is catharsis? You know, as we know, when you experience certain things, you go through a feeling and then you come through the end. How important is that for a human? And when I say, I mean, all of us humans. Absolutely. It's so important. I think that we all get caught up in one way or another talking about, you know, professionalism and having professional boundaries and don't talk about yourself. You know, it's all about the client. And I think with older people, you know, yeah, you can keep professional boundaries, but you should answer their question. If they say, you know, do you have children? It's not okay just to say, I can't tell you that or I can't, you know. No comment. Or where do you, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, where do you live? You can be very ambiguous with your answer. You can say things like over the bridge rather than saying, I can't, you know, I can't answer that because they're looking for that human connection. And I always say answer the question, but it's at your discretion of how much you want to share about yourself. And oversharing is not great. When I did my doctorate, and I interviewed home care workers, you know, it was evident that some were sharing too much information with clients. I had some of them say to me, a client would say, look, I feel sad, I feel down. And then the worker would turn around and say, oh, you feel sad? What about me? My, you know, my child's playing up, my husband's leaving me. And it's like, well, that's not appropriate, okay? It's not okay to say that. But I think it's also important with clients to, to connect with them at some level. And if you don't share anything, you're not going to have that connection. You ask a lot of questions of someone when we, well, I mean, not you, but us when we work in this environment, we ask a lot of them and I've always felt that you've got to give something back. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so many clients, there is one nursing home that I've been going for a long time and I've maintained contact with them. And I remember a client, you know, even during COVID times, you know, he was very concerned about me and how is my family? And, you know, sometimes we forget that a lot of their worries are about us. It's not just about themselves. They want to make sure that we're okay. And I'm sure that you've had the same, you know, with your line of work. Which leads me to the next point then, that it's often said that it's important for us to care for our elders as they live in residential aged care and in the community. But what about them? Don't they need to give love as well as receive love? Don't they need to be able to have some responsibility and to give to us as well? Isn't that a normal part of life? And do we do we take that away when we put our elders into care? Absolutely. And this is why I have rolled out a, um, you know, when I started because there was nothing <laughs> for me to refer to, <laughs> I developed a, a wellness program for people who just move into aged care. And it's a group program. You get up to 16 residents and you look at how to support their adjustment into residential aged care. So it's not psychotherapy. It's not group counselling. It is about that resilience and strength building and where they can really get to know one another and connect with one another. So we've come up with things like, you know, buddy program where they can buddy up. So it gives them that sense of responsibility and, and, and purpose I had a lovely lady who was making cards all the time. You know, in the years that I've known her, she gave me 12 cards. And one of them was like, hey, thank you for helping us win this award, you know, and $10,000 for the facility that she lived in. 
you know, she had a purpose. She had something that she was doing that was meaningful. And I think that sometimes we can really make people more dependent than they need to be. You know, I had a client who who was depressed because all her skills were not being used. You know, she wasn't doing laundry. She wasn't making her bed. She wasn't doing anything. And she just found it really difficult. And so at the time, she had no issues with her mobility. And so they got her to go into the laundry and help fold some towels. And she she was a, you know, a completely different person because she had that sense of purpose. Simple. And it was just something that just was so, like she was so proud of it. She was doing it for an hour a day and it just, it just gave her that complete change. It wasn't about putting her on antidepressants or putting into therapy. It was about giving her a meaningful task. And to her, being in laundry was meaningful. Yeah, that is very, very simple. And effective. <laughs> well, yeah, the outcome's there. I mean, the research is in, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what your biggest lessons you've learned are, but I think you've covered a lot of them. Is there something that you, that you haven't told us about that the biggest lesson you've learned? What would that be? I think the biggest lesson is uh, you cannot be know-it-all. You know, I- I'm not an expert. I see myself as a contributor. I contribute towards improving mental health outcomes of all the people. And, you know, I'm by no means best in, you know, a best psychologist or best therapist. I don't even do that sort of stuff. I do education. But I think that, you know, seeing myself as a contributor, it resonates a lot better with me than being an expert. And we cannot do it all either. So I cannot be (laughs) doing everything. And I think that biggest lesson is really to be clear about what your focus is and and to stick to it rather than do bits here, bits there. You know, first time I stepped into nursing home and I said I was a psychologist and I had staff coming up to me and telling me their personal problems and then family members going, oh, well, I've got issues with my siblings. And then I, I didn't even get to the older person and all these people had issues. So I think it's very important to be clear about what we do. And that can also help us reduce that sense of feeling overwhelmed at the end of the day. Did I do the right thing? Did I do enough? What what should I be doing? Because I can't be just out there <laughs> trying to do it all. So that was my probably biggest lesson. And if I was to ask you what are some of your biggest wins, what would you tell me about? Mm, probably that, you know, the workshops, seeing the transformation and feedback that I get from people saying, hey, I've done lots of training, but this was really good because I learned skills that I can use straight away. I mean, I've done lots of training where I walk away and I go, hmm, how do I put that information into my work? So getting those transformations has really been rewarding. And also, obviously, this is, you know, very fresh and we're still finalising it, getting those Medicare items for mental health professionals to go into residential aged care and that, that's huge. I mean, that's not just big for older people in residential care. That's also big for mental health professionals because they'll have to learn how to adapt their style of work and, you know, not just expect clients to rock up, you know, 20 flight of stairs to their office. You know, they need to actually get out there to see these clients and deliver the services. I know it's a bit different and difficult now with the pandemic and they need to wear a mask and make sure they have had the flu shot and all that. And there is opportunities for telehealth for those clients who can hear. But 
Yeah, I think it'll be a big change seeing those people go in and out of nursing homes across Australia. I think that that's going to be a big positive outcome. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask, because we need to, um, we really need to wrap this up, don't we, with my show? (laughs) Why did you start this podcast? Like, what are you trying to do with this podcast? What's the aim? Why are we here? Why are we here? We're here because we all make a difference. We are all very important in the work that we do. We need to work together to help our elders and also to understand that we're not alone in our journey in supporting older people. I know when I started my work, it was quite isolating. You know, none of my psychology friends did work in aged care. And so it's also an opportunity for those who work in aged care to connect and see what other work is, you know, available and how other people work and what do they do? Because, you know, when you go into a home, you're there for a very limited time. And so what happens with all the other time and who's in there and what do they do? So the podcast was really for people to understand how others work and what is involved. I've certainly learned a lot about, you know, even like music therapists, you know, they don't just turn up and, just play whatever they want to play and jolly people up. You know, that was that was a big lesson for me to really learn about how we can work together. And and that really features a lot in, in my book about the importance of collaborating and understanding what others do and how they also get those positive outcomes for our elders. You talk a lot in your book, Beyond the Reluctant Move, and I love I do love that title. There's a lot of a lot of practical advice and thought in this, but I do like. And you you talked um, you talked about contributing and being a contributor, a collaborator, and I think that that's really healthy, you know. And that's how I like to view myself. You've you've written this book, and it's a terrific book. I really like it, Julie. I really do. Thank you. I know it's. This it's, is not a paid endorsement. <laughs> it's no. <laughs> I would have to divulge any. <laughs> no, I ordered it as and I paid for it, and uh, it got sent in the mail, and it wasn't signed, which is very annoying. Um, you've written this book. You've got this great course that you've got on hands on, and you're you're talking about enhancing emotional well being. You you want to um, halve uh, depression. In uh, rates in uh, in aged care by 2020, these some really big goals for you. You've done all this. What's next? I think that what I focus on, you know, I'm getting some ideas and some concepts more about the workers and people who choose to work in aged care and 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 looking at their own resilience. And so I want to look into that topic a little bit more. I know that this year has been difficult for a lot of people. And I also know that those who work in aged care have all had a number of their own challenges they've overcome and things that have happened, you know, to them. I know quite a few people who've this year, you know, have had cancer treatment, who've had health issues, who've had family issues. I think it's important to look at it all holistically as a person and to see what is motivating people to give? Because usually people who give <laughs> are the ones who work in aged care. And I wanted to just explore that topic a little bit more. And I think that probably that will be the, you know, I'm just giving a little bit away, but that will probably be the topic for my for the next book, looking at, yeah, looking at the workers 
and looking at what we can do to support the workers better. I think out of this pandemic, what we've really realised is the value of our, our health workers generally, but particularly aged care and our teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you heard it here first on the Julie <laughs> podcast, book two, volume two. <laughs> volume two is coming, yeah. It's coming. All right, well, look, one more, one more quick question. You once asked me if I had a big magic, what would that magic be in aged care? So I'm asking you, what's your big magic? What would it be? Getting those depression rates down a lot by 2022. That would be the big, that, you know, depression rates are still there, but that they're not so high, that it's not one in two residents. I think that we can do it by collaborating, by helping people sooner rather than later, by improving or transforming the, the adjustment into residential care or adjustment to declining physical health in, in general, even in the community. I think that we can do it. We know that older people are resilient and many of them have better mental health outcomes than younger generations but we also know that they actually you know their health declines the more support needs that they have and I think that we can really nip it in the bud if we support them and give them the support at the right time you know there's, there's options even for people like you to actually help people sooner rather than oh you know here we've got you know this client and everyone's done everything. Come on, Moz, surely you can do something with them, you know? Giving that opportunity to work with people before their communication skills are limited and looking at, yeah, I think that's my big magic wand. <laughs> and what a great wand that would be to wave. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. We might have you back on the show, I think. <laughs> You're quite interesting. Thank you, Moz, and thank you. This was really, yeah, Quite an interesting idea. Initially, when you suggested to interview me, I was like, what do you mean? Like, why me? But I'm really grateful for this experience. And, you know, I'd like to thank the listeners as well. This is the last episode of this season. So we will start again in 2021 and, yeah, change the topic and the tune and, and pick up something else to focus on. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Moz. Thank you. And thank you, Julie for all you do. Well, that is another episode of The Voice of Aged Care done and dusted. Be sure to become a subscriber on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out when I release the next episode. I'd love to know what you're thinking of this podcast and what you'd like to hear in the future. So please leave a rating and review too. Over on my website, wisecare.com.au, with one click, you can grab a copy of my three top downloaded resources on mental health and well-being in older age. Let's face it, this can be a complex topic and I want to give you practical strategies to deal with it. Go to wisecare.com.au for your free copy of these three amazing resources. See you in the next episode.